Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not Listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not intruded the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. <coughs> Excuse me. For the Lord our God is, a right, is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, as we dive into the first half of what I put in my notes here is this pivotal chapter in all of Bible prophecy. You're going to see Daniel chapter 9 is a key linchpin, if you will, to a lot of understanding of the end times. We're going to only deal with the setup to that big key prophecy, which we're going to deal with next week. When we get to the 77s and the interpretation given by Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer, 
um, given, sorry, given to Daniel by Gabriel in response to Daniel's prayer. We're going to just deal with the setup to it tonight. Next week, we're going to come back. And if you remember, we're having Bible study next week. But then after that, we'll have no Bible study for three weeks after that. All right. So next week, we'll deal with the big key prophecy uh, in Daniel and in most of all eschatology uh, that really helps us understand the timing of everything, the timing of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, the timing of the seven-year tribulation period, all those things. We're going to get into that next week. Tonight, we're just going to do setup. Now, we've been talking about the importance of sharing with others things that may not happen in our lifetime, but will happen in other people's lifetimes. This chapter deals with, as you're going to see in just a little bit, specific prophecies about future dates and times. And Daniel began to get the prophecy from Gabriel because he took God's word literally and seriously. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of, the, of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, this whole chapter comes about because Daniel has read the prophet Jeremiah and he knows the prophecy, which we're going to get to in a little bit. We're going to cover that in a little bit. About 70 years were decreed for Babylon and for the city of Jerusalem and for the people of Israel in captivity. And he starts to do the math and he takes God's word seriously and literally. And because of that, he starts to realize it's going to be soon that we're going to be leaving here and heading back to Jerusalem. And we'll get into that in a little bit tonight. Now, we're going to come back to this, but this is a good time to show you that because Daniel believed God's word to be true, and because he believed that what was prophesied would literally happen, the Bible also shows us that there is strong evidence in Scripture that the wise men, the magi that came to visit Jesus at his birth, if you remember that, can be traced all the way back to Daniel and his teaching. And that's what I want to deal with tonight for just a little bit. It's been something that we've glossed over many, many chapters ago, and I've been praying the whole time through my study saying, Lord, when do you want me to put it in? There's something here that I want to pull out, and I feel like he's shown me that now is the time, and we've had enough teaching on Daniel that I think I can explain it to you hopefully enough, but Daniel took God's word literally. And because of that, and he, because of the fact that he was bold to share with others what he believed God's word said, and he was bold to live it out, I believe there's strong evidence here that the wise men coming to visit Jesus at his birth can be traced back to Daniel. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, if you remember from our study of Matthew, they don't go straight to Herod. They just go into Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And they're continually in the Greek, when they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? They're saying it over and over. In other words, they're walking around town going, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star rise in the east. And I'm pretty sure that the people in Jerusalem looking at him like, what are you talking about? 
But these wise men came from where? Came from the east. Go with me to Numbers chapter 24. I believe the east is this area of Babylon and Persia. And I believe this star that they were looking for is because of a prophecy in the book of Numbers chapter 24 that I believe without question Daniel taught them. In Numbers chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 15, there's a prophecy coming from Balaam. Remember, Balaam's been been trying to get him to curse Israel, and every time he does, prophecy and blessings come out. And so now in chapter 24, verse 15, he took up his discourse and he said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. What's Jacob? It's Israel. And a scepter shall arise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So Balaam is being paid to curse Israel. And he says, look, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. And when he, this last one, he, he just starts prophesying. Spirit of God speaks through him. And he starts talking about this one who is going to come and have dominion over Israel. And I see him, but not now. And I behold him, but not near. A star shall arise out of Israel, out of Jacob. Now, go back with me to Daniel chapter 2. If you remember, Daniel was made head of all of the wise men of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go back and take a look at that. Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 48. Daniel 2, verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar puts him over all of the what of Babylon? All the wise men who are where? In the east. But it gets even more clear. Go to Daniel chapter 5. Look at verse 11. Daniel 5, verse 11. This is when uh, Belshazzar is about to be killed that night in the handwriting on the wall story. Remember, the queen comes in and she says in verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father. Remember, that word means predecessor, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and what? astrologers. So chapter 2 tells us that he was made head over all the wise men, but now chapter 5, verse 11 gets even more specific. He's in charge not only of all the wise men, but it breaks it down into these guys that are Chaldeans and enchanters and uh, magicians and astrologers. And let me just tell you something that I think you would know about Daniel. 
I am pretty sure that Daniel's one of these guys that would say, hey, you guys like studying the stars? Let me show you something from the word of God. There's going to be a star one day that's going to come out of Israel, and it's going to, it's going to be announcing this king that's going to come. And they had been watching for it for a while. Because remember, Daniel, by the time Jesus is born, he's long since died. Many others have come and gone. But I believe without question, Daniel took his opportunity as the chief of all the wise men to teach them the word of God. And he taught them the prophecies so much so that even though the Jews who had the word of God didn't understand what was going on and weren't looking there were wise men in the East who over the years had had this passed on to him who believed it and were looking. And God had a star appear in the East and they saw it and they put two and two together and they followed it and just came into Jerusalem and said, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? They could have said the one Daniel told us about. Now, people say, well, how do you know Daniel taught them? Well, don't you remember from Daniel chapter 1 on that Daniel has been very, very bold about his faith in God and his belief in the word of God? You remember from the beginning of our study when Daniel was taken captive as a young boy? He didn't want to defile himself with the king's food. And he, 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 made, a, he made it clear, clear and plain from day one. I follow the Lord and I believe his word. Go to Daniel chapter six. Go back to Daniel six and look at what happens when the other satraps are trying to get something against him. Go to Daniel six, verses one through five. It pleased Darius to set up over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to Set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What was Daniel known for? His love of God, his worship of God, and his knowledge and love and obedience to the word of God. Now, in my mind, there's no question that as Daniel grew in favor with these wise men, that he would share with them about Israel's coming king. And you want further proof? You've had it in our study, and you haven't even let it sink in yet. What are chapters 2 through 7 written in? Aramaic. Why was Daniel writing in Aramaic chapters 2 through 7? He was introducing the God of gods to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians, to the Persians. It was written in their language for them to get it. Oh, and by the way, this will help me make sure where you're tracking with me. We don't have to study 7 all over again. Who's introduced to us in the vision at the end of chapter 7? Remember, there was this one who came on the clouds of heaven and he was presented before the Ancient of Days. Who is this one? The one that looked like the Son of Man. And he was given a dominion and a kingdom that will never, ever end. Remember, that was all written in Aramaic. I actually believe that Daniel had been teaching them from the moment he became head over all these guys. I believe he said, hey, you remember when I came here as a young boy and you guys picked my curriculum? 
You do remember they picked his curriculum. He was schooled in all their ways and everything. I bet you Daniel said, I get to pick the curriculum now because I'm head of the school board. And he, I believe without question, began to teach them the Old Testament prophecies of the coming king. And so when the wise men came to visit Jesus, I believe without question, you can trace it back to Daniel. Do you see the importance of us who are believers? Even though much of what is to come is going to happen that's been prophesied and we're not going to be here, we have to be telling people, this is coming. This is coming. My daughter and I are real close to finishing the writing of the book of Revelation commentary that we're, we're, we've been putting together and how it's a, 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 we're taking the chapters 4 through 22 study that we did back in 2015. We put it into written form and we've put Revelation in the chronological order of what is to come. And as we've been looking at it, we've been feeling this strong sense that this is going to be a book that God may want to use after we're gone where people can see it and read it and know here's what's going to be happening. Daniel was faithful in his lifetime to share what God showed him of what was to come, even though it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. The church has been focused so much on us and building our kingdom and building the church that we haven't realized that we've been given a responsibility for the generations to come as well. Tell them everything, that there is a day coming and there's going to be a judgment and that same Jesus that came to the earth is coming back. Now go to Daniel chapter 6 and look at verse 10. And that's going to set us up as we break down Daniel's prayer. Daniel has been praying three times a day for a while. We get this from Daniel 6 verse 10. <clears throat> it says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, remember the order that no one could pray to any other God except the king? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So what is Daniel known for doing three times a day? Praying toward Jerusalem. Remember, we've already done the study in 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon said, if we sin and there's no one who doesn't sin and you take us captive, may we pray back toward this place. And we're going to come back to that passage in a little bit later on tonight. But Daniel has been doing this for a while. But in Daniel chapter 9, things are a little bit different. This day, this year, Daniel gets very specific in his prayer because he realizes it's getting close to the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah about the length of their Babylonian captivity since the Medes, and the Medes and the Persians are in power now. Again, who is the king now? Darius, who is the son of Ahasuerus. We read that here in Daniel 9, 1 and 2. And if you remember Ahasuerus, you remember the book of Esther? That whole story of book of Esther? That's king of Ahasuerus. He's the one that gets mad at Vashti and all that. Well, his son Darius is now king. In the first year of his reign, reigning, Daniel starts to put two and two together, and he says, hang on for a second. The Bible said that our captivity was going to be tied to a couple of things. And one of them was the time that Babylon's going to be, have the ability to be in power, but there's going to come a point where 70 years come and Babylon won't be in power anymore. And the Medes and the Persians are in power now. And I believe that God's word is true. Now, at this point, it's been about 67 or 68 years since the prophecies began in 605 B.C. when they were taken captive. And Daniel starts to do the math, and he says, okay, God's word is true. I don't believe this is symbolic. I believe it's literal. 
And if that's the case, we got to be getting back to Israel and Jerusalem pretty soon. So he starts praying specifically toward Jerusalem about going back and why they were there. We'll get to Daniel's prayer in a little bit tonight. Now, Israel had not let the land rest every seven years like God had said to. This captivity that they're in Babylon is tied to that. I'm going to show you that from the scriptures tonight. This captivity in Babylon is tied to their sin and their disobedience, but it's also tied to the fact that way, way back, God had told them every seven years, on the seventh year, you let the land rest. You can harvest, plant, and harvest for six years, but on the seventh year, you don't plant, and whatever grows, that you'll get to live off of. You don't prune it. You just, whatever's there, you get to live off the land. And God says, I'll take care of you, and you have to trust me on this. Now, by the way, those of you who have any kind of a farming background, you know there's, it's smart to, what, rotate crops. You give the land a rest every now and then. If you just keep planting the same thing over and over, pretty soon the soil doesn't do what it's supposed to do. God knows all this because he made everything. But on top of it, not only is he wanting to bless the land and help bless them, he's also at the same time trying to teach them to trust him. But the nation of Israel didn't give the land its Sabbaths, and God was keeping track Let me show you what I mean. Go to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, look at verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, The land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, for your male and your female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and the wild animals that are in your land. All its yields shall be for food. In other words, what he's saying is, the land will produce enough in six years that you'll have left over. Leave the land alone during the seventh year. In other words, during those six years, there's going to be enough surplus that you don't touch the land during that seventh year, don't glean, don't sow, don't prune. In the six years, there'll be enough of a crop that that whole last seven years, seventh year, you'll be fine. Now, go with me to Leviticus 26. By the way, when God told him back in the manna to only collect enough for one day, and then on this, this day, collect enough for two days, how did they do in trusting him? They didn't do too well. Well, they didn't do too well here either. Look at Leviticus 26, verses 33 through 45. Leviticus 26, 33. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword. And they shall fall when none pursues, and they shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues." 
And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers that they shall rot away, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking in contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I'll remember what? The land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Now, don't miss this. Chapter 25 of Leviticus, God sets out in his law, I want you to give the land a rest every seventh year. In chapter 26, he says, and you're not going to do it. Isn't that what he says? And you're not going to do it. And because you're not going to do it, I'm going to give the land the rest that it, it was supposed to get by taking you into captivity. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It gets even more clear. 2 Chronicles 36, look at verses 17 through 21. 2 Chronicles 36, starting verse 17. Therefore he got, uh, sorry, yeah, God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his princes and all that he, these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Did you catch that? Until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now here, obviously, the Chronicles have been written after Jeremiah. But again, now the captivity in Babylon and the 70 years in Babylon is hinted at and that is spoken of. And we're going to get to there in Jeremiah in just a bit. But it's here in 2 Chronicles. God took him into Babylon for 70 years. Why? Because of the 70 years of Sabbaths that hadn't been. So every six years, they're supposed to have been a Sabbath, and they didn't give it the rest. And God says, that's one. And so you do the math. You have to get into the thousands of years in a row. What's that? 490. There you go. Well, 490 plus, because they get it, it gets trickier when you count the Jubilee years and stuff like that. So. But there's a long period of time, and God's keeping track. I want you to don't miss this. Some of us get 
freaked out by what's going on in the wickedness of the world. And man, are they going to get paid back? And folks, God's keeping track of every little thing. He knows. And by the way, he's keeping track for us as well of our reward. He's, he's, not, he's not blind to it. Go to Jeremiah 25. We, okay, Daniel's now hinted at Jeremiah. Second Chronicles is hinted at Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah 25 now and look at verses 9 through 14. Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 9. God speaking. He says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I'll devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the ver- banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then he keeps on going, and he, and he says this. He says, and I'll bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations great and, uh, nations and great kings shall make slaves of the, even of them, and I'll recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Now, this prophecy here is two parts. He says, look, they're going to go into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. But then after that, I'm going to judge Babylon as well. And everything that I said through Jeremiah is going to happen to them. By the way, that includes the things that are still yet to happen to Babylon in the prophecies here. Now, Daniel not only reads Jeremiah 25, he also reads, I believe, Jeremiah 29. Look at Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that interesting? How many of you ever knew that that famous verse that we all love to quote where God says, I know the plans I have for you is tied to the captivity in Babylon 70 years. So what does he say? When the 70 years for Babylon are completed, I'm going to visit you and fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, this is the setup. This is the key for what starts Daniel's prayer this day. And Daniel 9, go back to chapter 9, look at verses 1 and 2, and now read it again and see if it doesn't make a little more sense. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, Perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So if you go and do the historical research of when Darius was in power and all this stuff and what time it was, and you do the math from when they're taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, you realize, like I said earlier, it's been 67, 68 years. And the Persians are now in power. And Daniel says, I believe 70 means 70. 70. 
we'll be going back. Now, if you do a little more research, and we don't have time to get into all that, I thought about showing you this whole study, but I would have lost all of you. By the time you get Cyrus's decree to go back and rebuild and everything, it took him about a year or so to two years to everybody kind of regather and head back, and not everybody even did. And you got the wall starting to be rebuilt first, and then the temple and all this stuff. But if you do the research, you'll find out that 70 years is what happened. And that's going to be key for what we're going to look at next week. But as I said earlier in our study, Daniel's praying towards Jerusalem was in obedience to Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. Write these verses down. I'm not going to go back to them right now. I may go back to one of them in a little bit. 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, and then verses 46 through 53. That's 1 Kings 8, 27 through 30, and then verses 46 through 53. We'll probably come back to verses 46 through 53 in a little bit. Now, what I want to do in the time that we have left tonight, we've got 25 minutes, but it's going to take me a little bit to cover it. I want to contrast for you Daniel's prayer here in Daniel 9 with another prayer by another prophet that was prayed earlier. And that's what I want to spend our time. I really feel like God wants us to kind of take a deep breath. And we're going to take a look at this prayer and how Daniel prayed and allow God to speak to us because I... I think I'm going to hopefully be used to God to show you that Daniel's prayer is awesome. This other prophet that I'm going to show you, not so good. And I think a lot of Christians today have fallen into the type of praying for our nation the way the other prophet did. I'm going to show you Daniel's prayer first. And then we're going to go look at a different prophet and contrast the two and see if there isn't something that God wants to show us. Go to Daniel chapter 9, look at verses 3 through 19. <clears throat> Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What's that next word? If you don't mind highlighting in your Bible, what's that next word? We. Underline that word we. Circle that word we. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. There it is again. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you to the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law. Hang on for a Stop. We got to stop for a second. We've been studying Daniel since February. Can anybody show me where Daniel sinned? Daniel, from the moment we see him in chapter 1, is taking a stand for God. He's known as a man of God. 
He prays regularly daily. They can't even find anything against him when, it, when he became governor and he's over the money and making sure that the king doesn't suffer any loss. And they tried to and they couldn't. They said, we're not going to find him dealing with his business affairs incorrectly because he doesn't do it. If there's anything they were going to go after him, it's going to have to do with the law of his God. But Daniel prays, we have sinned. I think it's because he really believed 1 Kings chapter 8. Go back there with me now. Put a bookmark in Daniel 9. Go to 1 Kings 8. We'll look at verses 46 through 53. 1 Kings 8. Look at verses 46 and following. Remember Solomon is dedicating the temple that's just been built. He's praying an amazing prayer. And then he says this, if they sin against you, and I love this next part, for there is no one who does not sin. And you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, by the way, listen closely and tell me if this doesn't sound exactly like Daniel's prayer in chapter nine. We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them away captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they might have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which which you brought out of Egypt in the midst, from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you, for you separated them from all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you de- declared through Moses, your servant, whom you brought out of our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord God, look again at verse 46. If they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, And you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so they're carried away captive to the land of their enemy far off. Yet if they turn their heart in that land and they pray and repent and plead with you and say, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. Daniel was praying according to 1 Kings chapter 8. There's a tendency for us sometimes to look at what's going on in the world and think we're better. No, no, Solomon is praying about the nation when he says when they, when this happens in that time period, when they have, he's praying about the future. If they sin and there's no one who doesn't sin. So he's knowing that even though I'm probably not going to have it happen during my lifetime, there's going to be a time when the people of Israel are... And I know I'm also a sinner. But he says when they, at that time period, is what he means by they, Solomon, here. And he says when they say we have sinned. And so Daniel is in that group of people that were taken captive because of their disobedience to the law. And even though most of us would say, Daniel, you're you're one of the good guys. Daniel was like, no. I'm just as guilty. You do realize that the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, that he was able to, whoever is able to keep the whole law of God yet stumbles just at one point as guilty in the eyes of God as if he broke it all. Sin is sin, folks. But 
I don't think many Christians really understand this. I think, unfortunately, a lot of uh, Christians have been raised with this mindset of, oh, <clears throat> everybody's a sinner. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And we know how to quote that. But we think because we get saved at six years old and grew up in the church our whole life or, or whatever, that, you know, I've really been a pretty good person. And we look at the world around us, and we even look at the church people around us and see ourselves as better than some of those people that don't dress as good as I do on Sunday and those types of things. And when we even pray for God to bless America, I bet you a lot of our prayers sound like Elijah's prayer. Go with me to 1 Kings 19. Go to 1 Kings 19 and listen to Elijah's prayer. This may make you feel a little better because even prophets can fall into this mindset. Elijah's just been used by God to defeat the prophets of Baal. They've been all put to the death. 1 Kings 19, listen to verses 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as like one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went, into the strength of, went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of the hosts, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life. In other words, they're all wicked. I'm the only righteous one left, and they're wanting to kill me too. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the, fire, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, I'm going to give you another chance. You didn't answer right the first time. Let me let you answer again. And he answers the same thing again because God knew he would. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, I'm the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you're going to anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha, be put, shall Elisha put to death. Yet I leave 7,000 in Israel... All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, to clarify this for you, we need to run to Romans chapter 11. We actually have some commentary in Romans chapter 11 on this section that I just read, and it'll help us 
understand it a little bit better. Romans 11, <clears throat> look at verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, meaning the Jews, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. You said, Jim, you kept adding the word they to that passage. It wasn't there. Well, that's because Romans says it is. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that he's already predetermined who's saved and who's not. It's by grace because those 7,000 or the remnant, you know, the 7,000 at that time are the remnant that's now in Israel are people of faith. And that's why it's by grace. It's not by works. It's by grace. But listen to what God says. You think you're the only one left. I got, I got 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. He pretty much tells them, you're almost done, but you're not done, and you want to quit, but I got a little bit more for you to do before you do come see me. And by the way, he got a glorious taking home, did he not? But he said, before you go, don't quit and stop seeing yourself as the only one left. And I think with some of us, we need to be reminded that we are to not grow weary of doing good. Because in due time, we will reap if we don't give up. But folks, what you got to do is take your eyes off of how bad everybody else is, even in the church. Right now, there's this horrible thing going on where everybody's attacking each other in the, on the globe, correct? But unfortunately, right now, churches and Christians are attacking each other as well. Because everybody's wanting to build themselves up by pointing everybody else down or pointing out everybody else's faults. And the best way that you can actually grow in your walk with the Lord and have your prayers heard is to pray. Well, remember the story of Jesus and the Pharisee and, and the tax collector? The Pharisee who prayed, I'm glad I'm not like other people. I tithe. I do this. I do that. But the other guy wouldn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. He beat his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one was heard? The humble one. Do we need to pray for our nation? Yes. But I'm going to challenge you not to pray by saying, Lord, the nation's going to hell. And I'm one of the few people that are praying right now for our nation. Folks, let me just tell you, I want you to take your eyes off of the Democrats Take your eyes off the Republicans. I want you to stop praying about the people who are different from you in their views like you're better. Are there people out there that are living in sin? Yes, but pray for them the way Jesus would. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But that's not the kind of prayers I'm hearing in our churches today. So God... They've gone against you. No, we have gone against you. Let me ask you a question that I want you to answer out loud, but I want you to answer it in your heart. First part, you can, you can answer out loud. Would you not agree that the world today is living for self? I mean, you get to pick whatever gender you want to be. And all, I mean, everybody's living for self. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Okay, let me ask you a question. Um, have you lived for self in the last week? We're going to start all over because Glenn said no. 
<laughs> oh, he said, no. I thought he said, no. I thought you were being funny. He said, no. We've all got it in us, folks. And that's why the Bible says that we're to humble ourselves and daily lay our flesh on the altar and renew our minds. Yes, there's no one righteous, not even one. But even apart from the, even now that we've been given righteousness through Jesus Christ, we still, apart from him, can do nothing. We're going to close tonight. I'm going to let you out a little early. You've been good. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1 all the way to verse 12. By the way, as we read chapter 4, was the church written? Sorry, the church. Was the book of James written to the church or or the world? Church. And you're about to see very clearly written to the church. Listen closely to what was written to the church. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder and you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? By the way, don't you think the prophet Elijah thought that if anybody could see things like God does, he could? But he was way off, wasn't he? You and I can get way off too, even though we've got the spirit of God within us. And I feel like God wanted me to challenge you tonight with, before we get into the prophecy of the 77s, let's not forget how this whole prayer And the answer got started. Daniel believed God's word to be true and literal. And because of that, he started praying specifically, but he prayed in accordance with how the Bible taught him to and with the right heart. And because of that, as you're going to see next week, as soon as he started praying, God sent an answer. Wouldn't you like God to respond that quick to your prayers? Then humble yourself. Humble yourself. Love you all. We'll see you next week.